morning. We're too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. I know. I was just waiting for it to stop. Because I know one of these microphones will have picked it up. I was watching Treasure Island. No offense. Sorry. I'm awfully young to know that reference. It was on Koofy for a while, a few years ago. My dad would say it all the time, and then I was like, what is this show? And I started watching it, and I'm like, this show is amazing. Yes, I was so disappointed. I love Ricardo Montalban. This guy is amazing. It's like a... It's amazing that Parade of Guest Stars also. Yeah, it's like a Twilight Zone, but not quite so Twilight Zone-ish. Yeah, it's really like that show. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast in which we undertake the sepulchral task of discussing in story order of the Doctor Who novelizations. Yes, that is a word. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a slightly more lively four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. Yes. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and will- <laughs> it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. Yes, and finally, we welcome back our other novice fan, straight from Japan, where she found me a Japanese copy of Doctor Who and an exciting adventure with the Daleks, which y'all don't have. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, She also has not seen the original series and has only read a few other of the books up to this point, and that is the wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Konbanwa. Very good. Jenny has had extremely sophisticated adventures, and she was laughed on fire. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I call them sophisticated. Sophisticated. Uh, I don't think a it's lot of wandering exciting. around and sweating and looking at monkeys. But doing it in monkeys. three languages because that's what you do. with electronics. Yeah. That's true, yeah. You look at monkeys, that's what you do. Um, before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page available at HTTPS, patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know. We get your letters. We throw them immediately in the bin because we know what you're going to say to us. Angry paper letters from people who feel threatened at the prospect of being mailed Target books? We could. I, I imagine in a world a world where that would happen. Are they magazine cutout letters, ransom notes? How dare you, sir, propose to send me a Target book? Not yet, but I'm sure that'll happen with somebody. But that's as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And speaking of which, I just want to make an added push. Consider this our PBS pledge drive because I've never done one of these. We do really, really, really thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, who has just renewed his support for another year or so. Thank you, Bart. 
Rick Taylor and Toby Bengelsdorf. But those are our only three patrons, uh, which means we're making an obscenely small amount of money per month to cover things like SoundCloud and buy new mics. By the way, we're on new mics, can you tell? And to do things like pay for uh, people to go to Chicago Targets to record uh, live, which we're probably going to do again this year, and maybe even go to C2E2, which is a Chicago-based con that's coming up in March of next year. All of that costs money, unfortunately. In fact, that's part of the reason why we're no longer on Podbean, because Podbean sucks because <laughs> they, uh, they, they cost so much money. It's ridiculous. But we could really use the support. And we're not asking for $15 a month or $20 a month, even though the rewards are <laughs> pretty amazing for those uh, levels. No, we're asking for like $2 a month or $5 a month, because you'll still have your name said on the air if you do that. However, if you do pledge $30 a month, you get to marry Tony on contract for five years. Well, <laughs> actually, that's the $100 level. But My mistake. That's fine. That's fine. <clears throat> Actually, you, you kid, but at the $100 level, you could also be on the podcast. He's a U.S. Well, yes, I am, sadly enough. Um, I have another um, kind of exciting thing to say. We have a new discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, and best of all, it's hosted on Goodreads. Very good. Yes. Yay. So you can do reviews as well. Yes, you can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. That's tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. The reason why I'm giving you that one is because the Goodreads address is really long. So join us there. In fact, we expect you to. Damn it already. We made it for you. All right. So we're officially in season five of Doctor Who, which Woo. means we are in season five of our podcast. Not that we're really counting or anything. Uh, at least, you know, some of you may not be. I am. This time we're discussing Jerry Davis's novelization of his own script for Tomb of the Cybermen. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Tomb of the Cybermen, adapted by Jerry Davis from his script co-written with Kit Pavlo that aired from 9267 to 92367, published by Target Books in May 1978. As of this recording in August of 2018, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 141 pages. All right. This is the first story in the inaccurately named Monster Season, <laughs> so-called because every story except for one featured a new or returning monster. So obviously it's not a Monster Season if there's one story that doesn't have one. Naturally, the first one to come back was the Cybermen, because we know the Daleks were gone by now. Sadly, it won't be the last we see of them before the Troughton era ends, either. At the time, however, they were still wildly popular enough that this story, Stargame planned as the Moonbase was wrapping up, and according to Shannon Sullivan, it used material deleted from that earlier story, including the confusing comment that the Cybermen in that story came from Talos and not Mondas, which, of course, they would have to have done. It's kind of weird that it's in there. Jerry Davis was leaving his job as script editor, so this allowed him to co-write the story without falling afoul of the BBC's rules against script editors writing for their own shows. Among other trivia, first story produced by Peter Bryant under the tutelage of producer Inish Lloyd as a type of trial run for Bryant to take over later while Victor Pemberton whose Fury from the Deep we will be reading this fall, did script editing duties. 
And by the way, the actress who played Kaftan, Shirley Conklin, was at that time married to Bryant, and Davis wrote this role specifically for her. Do you mean Tunic? That, that's what I've been calling tunic? it. Tunic? <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, I'm going to be interested to see what you have to say about that one. Trust me, she's as impressive on screen as she is on the page, or not so, if you know, you're calling her Tunic. This story also, crazily enough, is the first complete story of Troughton's that still exists. And that wasn't even true until 1991 when the whole damn thing was found in Hong Kong. Up till then, probably based mostly on the quality of the book, it was considered one of the sought-after lost classics, but when it was recovered, fan reactions to the actual story were a bit more, shall we say, muted. These days, it's more notable for being the first full Doctor Who story that the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith, watched. And not only did it become his favorite story, he also modeled a huge chunk of his performance on Troughton's. Interesting. Hmm. So if you watch the story, you can see Matt Smith in it. One last bit of trivia. There's a scene not on the page in which before they enter the tombs, the Doctor and Jamie both reach for Victoria's hand and start walking in before they realize they've grabbed each other's hands. Uh. (laughs) Troughton and Hines worked this out in secret, and then they didn't perform it until the actual day of recording, knowing that due to constraints of time, it would have to be left in and would be chopped out. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So given what we've said about Davis's possible homophobia, it's not really a surprise it's not in the book, but it is a fun moment in the story. So, that cover, I'm going to pass this around so that everybody can see it. Can anyone tell me what's wrong with the cover? Because I've been getting comments about this all week. Passing it around, we're contemplating. Yes, I mean they're looking at it. Got like a faux metal Princess Leia hairdo. It's <laughs> crying. Aw, well, Cybermen always cry. They I'm, always have that I'm guessing it has to do with something with the design of the Cyberman. You're right, but it's the wrong Cyberman. It's about two sto- stories too early the for that worst design. Green novel of all time. Because everything else in there is fine, so it has to be something. Yes, whereas this one, the script book that was released just before the uh, story yes. was released, it has that's the, the creepy face it should have. That has the cyber controller on the front, and it has the cyber design that's all over the tomb on the back of it. Oh yeah, that's weirder. Yeah, it is creepier. It is so much, much creepier. creepier. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, that's now, cute. I like that little. The thing I like about the cover to Tomb of the Cybermen is that it's just, it is atmospheric and beautiful. Yeah, it's very yeah. Art Deco. Yeah, I it really is. like that. And it's one of the reasons why I, I believe this is the second Doctor Who book I ever got. Oh, It wow. may even be the, first, the second one. Because I just today stripped the uh, little thing off the back that said where it was bought and when. It was 1986. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's the year I was born. Oh my god. <laughs> what a spring chicken you are. We yes. Have yeah. Well, say goodbye to Jenny, everyone. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> yes. That's no. fine. That's fine. We're used to it by now, or at least I should be. Well, as punishment, we're going to have Jenny read the back cover. It's <laughs> <laughs> punishment for her you. Yes. You'll pay our the new student in class. You have to read the book. <laughs> the new student out of a vagina. Um. <laughs> well, where do they Thank you, I got wine on my nose now. Where else will they come from? Cybermen. Well, the, the Cybermen. Uh, oh, this is an N dash, not an M dash. That pissed me off. Anyway, the Cybermen, silver, indestructible monsters whose only goal is power, seem to have disappeared from their planet. Telos? Is that what it? Telos. When a party of archaeologists 
joined by the Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria, land on the Cyberman's barren, deserted planet, they uncover what appears to be their tomb. But once inside, it becomes clear that the Cybermen are not dead. Which I was like, oh, are they dead? Deactivated? I felt like I was in Monty Python for a second. Like, I'm not dead. Like, wait, no, I'm kidding about that. Are they on the card? I don't know. Um, Bring out your dead as one. Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favor. And some in the group of archaeologists desperately want to reactivate these monsters. How can the Doctor defeat these ruthless, power-seeking humans and the Cybermen? Da 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 da. Very good. Thank you. Well, you divide and conquer. (laughs) And you also give away the plot on the back of the book again. Yeah, don't you just love that? Just separate them all. Yeah, exactly. One by one. When Um, they think they're getting one over on you. But they're not. Yeah, we have to talk about that, just how much of a uh, surprise everything is. There are a few other things we have to talk about, too, including, and I have to make sure that I get this in, because I forgot to put it in the script, Trey Corte, who's not here Trey with Corte, us Trey Corte, what has he got to say? <laughs> you stole my joke! Uh, that's fine, though. That's got to be, like, a new podcast or YouTube channel, <laughs> because Trey Corte, what has he got to say? Trey is never going to come back, you realize that? Yes, he, he, will. Will. he likes oh, us. Yeah, he does. He says, I, I want for tonight's discussion, since I uh, won't be there for the tonight's discussion, since Toberman will come up, if Toberman were described as white or fair, but everything else was the same, how would it read? Worse, better, would it not translate? That may be an angle to dis- explore when discussing just how racist the betrayal is. Wait a minute, is Tober, I missed that then. He's described as dark? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Oh. And specifically Turkish. The yes. betrayal? Oh. What? B-trail or portrayal? Portrayal. Okay. Portrayal. That's something we have to discuss, and in fact, that's one of the um, main criticisms ever leveled against this story, is the fact that if you watch it on television, it's kind of hard to ignore the fact that it's white people set against darker people, and all of them set against silver people. Because that's what happens in Doctor Who, that's how they do. Which I did not pick up on that when I was reading the book. There's definitely like that's why I was laughing about the whole Captain tunic thing because I'm like first of all Captain like that that means a shirt or a tunic like why in the world would they have given a name that means tunic like it's the most orientalist like wraps you up like a scarf makes you feel warm with her her uh, liquid Middle Eastern voice oh, yes. and her sexy spacesuit is sleek and shining. I was like, what? Like, how? The woman always gets the sexy spacesuit. Like, yeah, why? Of course she does. Just, like, why? Um, Which she doesn't actually have on screen. I was oh, no? No. Expecting it to be a significantly more exasperating portrayal, but I thought that she had significantly more personality than I expected mm-hmm. as the story played out. Oh, yeah. yeah. And oh, she yeah. wasn't just the mysterious Middle Eastern femme fatale. I mean, she is, but the way the way in which she is and is not the mastermind, I thought were interesting. And the way she's able to control situations when everyone else is melting down. Right, exactly. She's afraid of bugs, though. Yeah. Those Cybermen. She's afraid no, of bugs. She terrifying. seems to travel with a slave. Yeah, yeah, that's the big thing. 
That's the thing. And when you're watching it on screen and you see this petite white woman in brown face, because that's essentially what it is, you know, playing with this, you know, fluid Arabic accent with this gigantic, how did we say it? Giant Negro. Is that the phrase that you had trouble with? Whenever it came up in previous books, big negro, big negro, giant negro. There are like yes. three different oh. iterations. Yeah, he Toberman on screen is that, and then you have Klieg, who literally is a James Bond villain. He was played by an actor who did uh, James stint as a James Bond villains. My apologies, dear listeners. I have no idea what I was smoking that night, but. Obviously, George Pastel was not a Bond villain. He was in From Russia With Love. Maybe I was thinking about his being the villain in The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. But yeah, not a Bond villain. My apologies. So it's like, oh god, oh this is the most racist thing ever. But that doesn't come across on the page as much. And I think that's where Trey's question was coming from. Did it read to you as racist particularly? Or you, I mean with the name Kaftan, Jenny, you had some difficulties. Just, just a, a skosh, you know. It, it, not enough compared to things that I've encountered before. In, it was there when you think about it, yeah. but it wasn't overt. There's okay. the I forget what the name of the cultural phenomenon is, but uh, the it was in the news this week. Referred to as the Amarusa syndrome of oh. American television loves a black woman who is very in control of the situation, who's a villain. I remember this being especially brought up. Yes. Some of the guest stars of 24 as well. Ah. This sort of, the woman of color who is very in control is the villain. It did play into that, but made her more like, interesting and sympathetic than I expected. Well, Tina Turner and Mad Max. Yes, yeah. and, and Luke Cage for that matter. Because yes. Luke Cage also has um, the wonderful Alfre Woodard yes. as the villain. Yes. She's but fantastic. Most of the cast is black and Luke Cage. It doesn't there, really... there are a lot of things that they get away with that ordinarily would be a, a bit hair-raising. Agreed. Agreed. So, I did yeah. want to find that, that line, though, because I, I totally missed that he was described as being dark. I, I got Turkish, maybe. But he's described yeah. as being Turkish, and then someone remarks on, he's a pretty strong guy, isn't he? And Kevin yeah. says... Yes, he's strong like all yeah. our people. Here's she with a sleek and shining spacesuit topped by a fine-boned, beautiful Arabian face. Um, we got that. But, but she wasn't running away and screaming. No, so she I did pretty good. good. She did good. I she expected held a lot of screaming from the tunic. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Which is kind of the opposite of a sexy spacesuit. Yeah. I really like the... This is just totally... Because I'm here on the page. The They blow the... The, the planet the bomb. from yeah they blow the bomb so they can expose the doors and there's this great weird onomatopoeic word that's like and I'm like I don't know that that sounds like an explosion um, I don't know what it sounds like I thought about it for a long time tried to make it dirty couldn't but uh, <laughs> made, that made me laugh um, if you read the book on tape My- Michael Kilgariff who played the cyber controller um, does the sound effects, no even though there are sound effects on the soundtrack, so they're on there, and it's kind of like he's doing crimp, boom, crimp. It's hilarious. It's absolutely funny. So this is the first one that I have seen with Victoria in it. Same yes. here. And has she only been in one so far? Um, yeah. This is her second story. This is her, well, according to you, this is her, um, introductory story as a companion, because they're not a companion until they go on the TARDIS. Yes. Oh. Yeah, Dalton. Yeah, the last. So the last story, she was a character in the story. 
but I don't consider her being a companion until she is like joined the party. Kind of like Jamie was in the Highlanders. Okay. And I'm glad you brought that up because in the televised version, there's a scene at the very beginning that we don't get in this book and it actually causes a problem for the narrative. Um, They filmed an opening scene with the TARDIS and Victoria seeing it for the first time. There is a remix of the orbital theme of Doctor Who that has that scene at the very beginning of it, which is really awesome. But having said that, that's when she first enters the TARDIS. Yeah. So it's not until this story that she does it. But this is like the first time she's really like involved in everything from the beginning. It's a fair definition, though. If they're not on the TARDIS, they're not a companion. It's also the first scene that refers to the Doctor's age. Mm. which is why you have that narrative problem later. Victoria seems to know his age somehow, and it's because it's from that scene that's now missing. Which is unfortunate, because the opening scene of this book is not in the televised version, and it's pretty good. Yeah. So it's six and one, half dozen and a month. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I know I took us completely off topic. We were talking about Victoria. We were talking about the fact that two of you have not seen this woman before, and I want to get your first impressions. Allison, what did you think? Well, once again, she wasn't running and screaming, and she didn't bring pearls to clutch, so that was a pleasant surprise. She did bring a handbag, though. Uh, yes. <laughs> I did like... I did like that she had a sense of her own modernity. Yes. And she doesn't think of herself as being hundreds of years old. And There's a scene where she refers to... I'm sure they... I should have known that there are, you know, fuddy-duddies in this time as well who have very sexist yes. ideas. Yeah. And we think of... The Victorian era, I don't know what years she's supposed to have been plucked from. 1867, I believe. 60s, so. Okay. Um, But we think of it as, I'm referring here to the Victorian era in the English-speaking world, we think of it as this very repressive era for women, but that's partly public norms that are reactions against a proto-feminist movement. Mm -hmm. So it totally makes sense in this context of this daughter of a scientist thinks of herself as a very modern woman yeah. and very curious, but others don't expect her to be that way. They see her as a person from the past. Right. And in fact, it's interesting you should bring that up. Someone, I was just talking to somebody who's reading Dracula for the first time, and she asked, does Mina Marie ever, you know, grow a pair? Is she always going to be like this? And I said, no, she's always going to be like this. She's going to be what Bram Stoker thought a modern woman should be, and that was 1899. So those attitudes didn't go away. But he was reacting against what so many modern women actually were. Yes, that's (laughs) true. So I expected her to be portrayed with, if necessary, she should purchase pearls to clutch, um, (laughs) and that she would be used to being treated in a sexist way. But she's pretty angry about it and pretty annoyed with it. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was actually a very nice way to portray her sense of modern self in her own time. Well, they, the Doctor and Jamie are the only ones that know that she's from the Victorian era. Everyone else just... Yeah, Captain just thinks she's naturally for stupid, Jamie, which is kind of crazy. Right. Yeah. Because so. she doesn't know what a chicken tablet looks like. We, yeah. we as the reader would expect her to be, uh, you know, used yeah. to not getting out a lot. But her, and but her reactions the to the professor and the clique are very like seriously refreshing. Really? Though they're great, yes. they're yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's like thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Yeah, because we haven't had a companion quite this strong. And I'm Not amazed. That, I'm amazed. I'm saying this about Victoria because I know what's coming. <laughs> um, but I'm surprised we have we haven't had a, a female companion this strong since Barbara. Hmm. Yeah. 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 And the doctor several times 
makes special mention of <laughs> of her intelligence and how he trusts yeah. her to like do the right thing. Like he yeah. leaves her alone with with Tunic up there, um, trusting yeah. that she'll somehow figure things yeah. out. And even points out to her, "I'm not leaving you behind yeah. because I'm worried. Yes. I'm leaving you behind because we need you're you in my like... eyes." Because but then he makes a mis- but he makes a mistake in doing that. The, one of several, but well, we'll get there in a minute because I want to talk about but, how the Troughton Doctor is a big asshole in the story. But he explains it to her because she's pretty upset. Yeah. About it, well, she's she not assumed, used to yeah. being condescended to in yeah. a way that the reader might expect a Victorian upper middle class woman to be accustomed to being condescended True. to. Well, and it's nice getting getting more of her character because in the last story she basically was the damsel in distress. Oh, yeah. Even when she didn't want to be, they kind of forced her into that role. Mm-hmm. I thought that, that there was a really lovely scene in here where she talks about the death of her father in a way that doesn't make it the definition of who she is. It seemed... Mm-hmm. rather lifelike and lovely yeah. she thinks about him but she's not frozen in place as the dead scientist screaming dog right that is actually <laughs> one of the most famous scenes from the original series she's already thinking about it and growing and developing beyond that yeah. and i thought that was quite <clears throat> lovely yeah yeah you rarely get character development moments like that in well any of classic doctor who but especially in the 60s Having the doctor and the companion just sit down and say, how are you feeling, hon, is just really weird and unusual, and it's awesome. Yeah. Especially the Jerry Davis script. I'll he's come not... back to that for my favorite yes. scene. Yes, absolutely. So, Victoria, anything else, uh, what else do we have to say about her? Well, obviously we can, can say whatever we want to about her. Um, I thought it was interesting. Now, what else have we read by this writer? We have read Doctor Who and the Cybermen. We have read the Highlanders. Uh, Jenny, you were on board for that one. Yeah. Um, we have also read God Tenth Planet. You would have read that one. The I last part. Interesting. How many times he went out of his way to show her being exasperated about being treated in a sexist way? Mm-hmm. We haven't seen that before. We've seen maybe one or two mention of Barbara being annoyed by something. Especially, but this is like half a dozen different scenes. Yeah. She's like, "Really, you're going to say that to me? You're going to treat me in that way?" And isn't this one of the earlier adaptations? It is. 1978. Yeah. 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 It's early. In that way, much better than some of the ones we've read from ten years after. Oh, yeah. 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 In fact, it's better than some of the ones Jerry Davis did ten years later. It's yes, that's insane. it. Really surprised me because I didn't remember which ones he wrote specifically, but my expectations were relatively low when I found out there's literally a Victorian named Victoria. Yes. Yes. Well, I don't remember um, Jenny. Maybe you'll be able to jog my memory. I don't remember him treating Polly or Kirsty particularly um, well in the Highlanders. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, definitely not Kirsty. She was a, a wet blanket. And so, um, <laughs> Polly was a bit better, but most of that interaction was spent having Polly kind of criticizing Kirsty, which I actually thought was kind of unfair because yeah. it was like, hey, she is from a totally different time as you. You can't criticize her for for who you know she is um and there you're right there weren't as many kind of the narrative or the characters through the writer calling attention to polly's treatment i would say um they did interesting things but it wasn't overtly mentioned yeah but you don't get victoria someone like victoria saying well that's unfair i should be treated better and and because it doesn't matter what gender i am especially that weird mention that she makes about 
knowing that the doctor is from a time where men and women do all of the same jobs. Yes. Yeah, yeah that was interesting. Yeah, and that's that's Davis just making something up out of whole cloth because obviously the doctor's not from another time. He's from a completely different planet, but it is accurate. But the Victorian woman is surprised that these scientists from the future are being so gender aggressive. Yes. And that, by the way, is interesting. Yes. Which she is... expects better from what she knows about the doctor. Oh, yeah, because this is supposed to be the 26th century. Yeah. And even Kaftan is treated with kid gloves. I was surprised that the scientists were just stupid in general they're like what are these controls can i do math i'm like are you idiots like come on what what did you think was gonna happen when you came into this there the degree of like narrative i wish i had somehow quantified it spent discussing like the fumbling of controls was kind of extra get the lever push the button i can't get it what am i doing what do we think about the trap aspect of this (laughs) that it was supposed to be the Cybermen constructed a clever trap so that only very smart people with juicy, desirable brains would be able to get into the hatch. Exactly. And then the Cybermen are trapped by the hatch. Yeah. And then <laughs> when they do have them there, they're like, oh, we're going to convert you. Then we're going to freeze you until it's time for our clever plan to start. Like, what are we waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I, I did like the idea, though, because I think, oh, the villains are here to get the occult object or the scientific wonder or something. They use it to they control it to rule the world, and instead they'll be killed. You know, it's a, it's a classic sci-fi plot. I'm like, ah, oh, this again. I thought it was a little bit clever that it was a yeah. trap to lure smart people, but then it didn't seem to go anywhere. It doesn't. You're absolutely right. That's one of the big criticisms uh, leveled at the story, the fact that the, in fact, the Doctor Who Discontinuity Guide <laughs> basically says of this story, um, not much of a story. Uh, the Cybermen come out of the tombs and they go right back in again. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what they do. And there's no, there's no feeling that there's some master plan coming up because it of it. didn't seem menacing. It didn't seem like there was a threat. There were times where I was reading this like that I felt like it was going to be a fucking amusement park or something. <laughs> Murder world. Like like it would be like Space Museum Part 2 or oh, something. God. Like, oh, God. Like, but like Cyberman Museum. Like a place to go experience the Cybermen and see what they came from, but it's not really threatening. I thought they did build that menace up until they were able to track the Cybermen with the hat. Because I thought... Yeah. The description of Jamie being mesmerized by the circles was wonderful. The sort of psychedelic yes. experience where he's being sucked in. And then the scientists think that they're controlling the situation when, in fact, they've been lured by this tomb honey trap the entire huh. time. But then it just dissipates. I still don't get the point of the fucking target room, though. Nor do I. What's the point of that? Says the well, how is it threatening if it's like... You push a button, a gun comes out and shoots at a mock-up of a Cyberman? How is that? Yes. What? What? And that's what made me think it was yeah. like a revelation. It made me... F- like... Well, they had to plant the gun there so that Cleve could get it. Yeah, and that's the episode one cliffhanger, too. Really? Yeah, it is. There were... Yeah, there were... And, and the sarcophagus that, that Victoria gets stuck in... Yes. I felt like, oh, is this just like a thing someone goes and stands in? I was like, oh, this is what a Cyberman recharges in. They also <laughs> describe it as being three meters tall. Yeah. Which no is, no. Way. And then they say that That's the like, Cyber Commander what, is seven feet. feet. Yeah. 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 It's like, no, no. Well, Michael Kilgariff is seven feet tall. Oh. Yeah. He's, he's huge. 
However, the three meters, <laughs> right. three meters. Three I'm like, meters no, Cybermen like, are not that tall. No, they're not. And the the form that she gets into is not that tall either. It's Michael Kilgariff sized, as a matter of fact. I thought that there were several moments that did build up a great kind of suspense, like that creepy sarcophagus, and oh, yeah. when, yeah. Um, when Tunic. I'm just gonna keep calling her that. Yeah. <laughs> I called her the, the entire story when tunic shuts victoria in there i was like holy shit like this is a yeah. an electrifying going down. like yeah, is she going happen. to kill victoria like this is kind of frightening and then too all the there was like this implicit threat the entire time that humans were going to get turned into cybermen and that to lose your humanity is the biggest threat in this story um yeah. Which is much bigger than it has been in previous stories. And that sadly never paid off. I was no. so excited yeah. for Klieg to get turned half into a Cyberman. Yeah. Yeah. Even and it's Toberman. Even it would, be, it would be Captain, but she wasn't that different. Yeah. Not much, yeah. Not much of a change. Oh, that's Which they've done in the new series. They actually did that we for one of the Christmas. Tell. Yeah, they did it in the Christmas special where a woman who's very, you know, liberated for her time because it's Victorian era willingly allows herself to be partially oh. cyber converted because she wants the power that comes with oh, it because right. she's repressed by men hmm. and she turns it against cybermen because they say well now you are going to work for us and she says ha fuck you this is the most power i've ever had i'm gonna use it there's been no conversion sir no one's ever been able to change my mind the cybermen offered me the one thing i wanted liberation who are you you could be quiet I doubt he paid you to talk. And it's brilliant. But yeah, you're right. That would have been brilliant. And even with Toberman, like, okay, he gets these arms, but we don't get to see it. We don't get to see the, like, the threat or the agony or his fear, which would have been nice. We would have actually gone a long way towards humanizing this character, who's kind of interesting. You know, he yeah. ends up being very useful in certain parts of the narrative. Oh, and, you well, know, ultimately saves everyone. Yeah, there's that line, like, he closed the door with his life, which I thought was a nice little yeah. line. Yeah, um, but we never get to see it, so yeah. that was a sad tease. However... The counterpoint to that is that the doctor manipulates him into doing it in much the same way that Kaftan would have manipulated him as the owner of a slave. That is true. Yeah, which is kind of those moments where you realize the second doctor has gotten them into this situation and now he's using somebody else as a pawn to get them out of it. You said before that this is the doctor who is said to be the hardest to capture. Yes. This is the first book where I thought there was some sort of personality and inner life that came to the surface. I would think so, too. Described. Probably, because it's Jerry Davis and he met Troughton personally. Um, in fact, um, Jenny, when we read The Highlanders, did you find that you could get a sense of the Doctor pretty well from Yeah, him? yeah, definitely. I think it's I think it's Davis. Hey, the first quote that I, the first that I read that made me think of that was, the Doctor smiled his upsetting smile and brushed off the top layer of the dust of his coat. Yes. And the thing I've gotten from this doctor so far is sort of a the boy ain't right vibe. Yeah. Like, is he kind of crazy? And this is the first time that I thought a writer of one of the adaptations had used that effectively. It's just sort of, this is, you know, by acknowledging that he is upsetting, which is a generic word that somehow works very well in this context, I thought, mm -hmm. that he that he is unnerving to others. It sort of pulled things together mm -hmm. in a way that before I thought he was supposed to be whimsical, but he was just terrifying. Yeah. And how he uh, controls the situation when, um, uh, I think, Klieg is demanding to know, how did you know how to open those doors and not get electrocuted? No, tell me now. Um, you know, yes, yes, I can see that, said Klieg, impatient with the suggestion that he didn't know his math. 
But how did you know in the first place? Um, I used my special technique, <laughs> said the doctor calmly. Really, doctor? Asked Cleeg sarcastically as Black Joe flipped close to Dr. Phil. Okay, it's Cleeg Black. Yeah. I just now figured this out. Dark brown. Okay, I, I was visualizing <laughs> him as... I thought they would be played as a stereotypical German. Now it's all coming together. Yes. Why are all the dark I believe the actor is an okay. Egyptian, actually. I totally oh. missed that. And may we know what that means? The doctor stood opposite Klee, casual, his hands in his baggy frock coat pockets. The other men were silent, scenting trouble, looking from the heavy-built scientist to the slight figure of the doctor, keeping my, my eyes open and my mouth closed. How did you know in the first place? Oh, I use my own special technique. Oh, really, doctor? And may we know what that is? Keeping my eyes open and my mouth shut. And everyone laughs and thinks it's wonderful. And that was the first time in the adaptations I've read about this doctor that we see him being smart. Kind of playing yes. dumb, but being smart. Whereas before, he seems to be more of a holy fool than it's actually true. strategic. And I could see that. And you're going to see a lot more of that, too. Especially since this is one of those stories that the uh, second doctor is... Well, like I already said earlier, I think he's responsible for most of the deaths in the story. <laughs> uh, and very directly so, because the... Jimmy's uh, very cold-blooded when it comes to death. Oh, in the story. No, I was oh, just surprised. Like, a lot of people oh, yeah. all destroyed. A lot of people <laughs> dead in this story. I yeah. counted them up. Yeah. There's, let, let's see where I, I wrote them all. Because uh, I, I was, uh, different parts, I just kept writing these notes, like, oh shit, like, we got a piece. And then I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Tunic is dead. Viner is dead. Hayden is dead. Crewman number one, I just called him, is dead. Mm -hmm. And Kleeg. And then Toberman, too. This is a six death count story. I feel like that is the most death I have witnessed in a Doctor Who book that I have read. There's a lot of death. And the first one, and. That's Crewman number one. Yeah. And Viner are probably the only ones that are not like directly related to actions of the doctor. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. I should have known because in the first three pages I'm like, there are so many fucking people in this book. Oh my gosh. And it's it was, like, oh yeah, they're all gonna die. This was gonna kill no problem. He's not Egyptian, he's Greek. Cypriot. Oh. Yeah, sorry, but no, no, no. That, I, I, I had to look that up, but yeah, yeah. The, the first death, that can't be laid at the doctor's feet because he's not there yet. Yeah, and Viner was not and Viner, not really Viner's death is much more impressive on the page than it is on screen because they, Viner turns. He goes from being this whiny character yeah. to suddenly having a backbone. Unfortunately, he gets shot. Yeah, in but, the back. In the back. Yeah, well, in the backbone. I think that's. I think that's hate. Uh, <laughs> Very Hayden, precise but, shot. But <laughs> yeah, if you think about it, every other death comes about because of the doctor. Because Hayden comes about because the doctor pointed out to them they didn't notice the two entrances on either sides of the room. He could have just kept stum about that. He didn't. He didn't need to open the hatch at all. It's because of his intervention that Cleeg is able to open the hatch. And he stands by and watches Klieg unthaw the Cybermen, even though he knows that's what he's trying to do. And it leads to everybody dying. I expected him to have more of a master plan than he ended up having. And he doesn't. It's all, when you're talking about Holy Fool, I would say just a fool in this case, because he's like, something's wrong, I'm going to find out what it is. Oh, too late. But I don't know what it was. curiosity got the best But of they shouldn't be yeah. smart enough, and knowing enough about the Cybermen at the beginning, that I thought he had it all mapped out. He knew how this was going to go, and then 
either he didn't or he's as cold-blooded as Jenny because (laughs) 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 the bodies hit the floor in this one. Yes. I think I landed a note somewhere, though, that it seems like the Doctor has always been fine about leading people into mayhem. He's like, oh, we're here. There's a war. People yeah. are like, hey, maybe we should stay on the ship. He's like, ah, let's go outside. Let's like, go this is not, to me, this is not new behavior. Oh, yeah. The new series is going to specifically pin him down on that. Oh, yeah. okay. In fact, one of his greatest enemies is going to say, look what you've done to the people who oh. follow you. You turn them into soldiers. The man who abhors violence, never carrying a gun. But this is the truth, Doctor. You take ordinary people and you fashion them into weapons. Behold, your children of time transformed into murderers. I made the Daleks, Doctor. You made this. The more I've read these adaptations, the more I realize how much of the new series is the writers and dialogue with the Doctors they grew up with. Yes. As much as the Doctors from the new series. fuck yeah. Yeah, because if you look at the uh, Matt Smith Doctor... It's definitely a dialogue with the second Doctor, and if you look at um, Capaldi, it's kind of a take on the Hartnell. Yeah, there was some place where Cleeg was sweating with triumph. I'm like, I don't know exactly how you do that. Um, it's just like, oh, I did it. God, I'm, I'm sweating. Like, I- <laughs> yeah, it, well, it does happen, but um, there's one thing that's interesting about this depiction of Troughton. It loses some of his humor, and I think that's where that comment about him being hard to portray on the page comes from. Because Troughton loved do he would never do one scene the same way twice. And you don't get that on the page. Except in John Peel's books. You do get that sense, it's like, oh yeah, you can see somebody just not following the rules. Yeah, some of the... From what I've gathered in the few stories, Troughton seemed like a very physical actor. Yeah. It brought a lot of physical aspects to the Doctor that unless the writer actually takes the point or the time to point it out, mm-hmm. could just be glossed over and lost. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And there's not a whole lot of that here. No. But some of the other books we've read have been really great <laughs> in playing up kind of the, the clownish nature mm-hmm. of him. Yeah. Um, it's not so much here. Yeah, because he's he's a little too worried about the situation to be a clown, but by the same token, he should be a lot more worried so he could save more lives. Yeah. As much as I love this story, I'm very pissed off at the Doctor in this story. Because, yeah, this isn't the last time this is going to happen. It's kind of cold, though, because in in the end, like, all the people that were there to do something bad in the first place were killed. This is true. So, in some ways, the Doctor's like, this is what you wanted. This is what happened because of what you wanted. So, my hands are clean. I helped you do it. Which isn't great, but it's still, like... Yeah. You wanted the tomb of the Cybermen. I gave you the tomb of the Cybermen. They, you brought them to life. It wasn't good. <laughs> yes. It is an opportunity for a, an explanation of why the Doctor is so casual about death, which in some ways would be easy to present. You have a life cycle of a human is X number of years. But there's a lot of variation. Yeah. And, you know, these weren't immortal creatures anyway. And these died a few years early. But in the, within the normal range and... It actually would be more chilling if he articulated why he was casual about it, but it seems like he doesn't really notice, which is somehow less chilling. Yeah, he does, and we're going to get that in the new series too, because, uh, and this troubles me to say it, but uh, the Tenth Doctor gives a reason for why he never came back for Sarah Jane Smith as the fact that he would have to watch her age and then die. I don't age. I regenerate. 
the humans decay. You wither and you die. Imagine watching that happen to someone that you... What, Doctor? You can spend the rest of your life with me. But I can't spend the rest of mine with you. I have to live on. Alone. That's the curse of the Time Lords. Oh, God, you have to watch Woman Age. Yes, there's nothing worse than watching a Woman Age. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, God. Uh, wasn't this the joke uh, about George Clooney yeah. and an astronaut movie? Yeah. He drifted into space and died. Yes, exactly. Spend time with a woman of his own generation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. But that's at least given as, you know, Time Lords don't age, they regenerate. Except when they do age, because we saw Matt Smith turn really yeah. octogenarian. But they should be used to it. They should be used yeah. to seeing people age and die. They should, but they're not. They're not used to it. So part of it is always finding young people, except when he doesn't. On a narrative level, I, it's not that I'm glib about death. Um, we'll, we'll get to that later in the little exchange between Victoria and the doctor about the father. But it's just that this narrative has done nothing to make me care about these people. So when right. somebody dies, I'm just like, hey, you're dead. Yeah. Like, it's, it's not yeah. that <laughs> interesting or... Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's not so. that interesting or remarkable to me. I did... Uh, there are parts that they spend, you know, a, a short paragraph kind of remarking, like, I think, is it Viner remarks Viner about Viner gets Hayden's, one of those and Hayden like, gets one. You know, potential, and I did think that was nice, but mm -hmm. you're not going to you know, build love for a character with three sentences of, oh, he was a good guy and they were sad to see yeah. him moon down. But it's more uh, than we normally get with these books. It's it's true, it's true. But I'm just saying that in terms of um, concern about the Doctor's, like, not caringness for death, I think I have that overall in general. But I think, though, that I had that as a connection to just why is he so okay leading all these people into trouble. I've had that for, for many books. Right. Not this one in particular. Mm -hmm. That's all. There have been other writers who have created more effective tragedy of it, I think, where even though it's a character we don't know much about, there's more of a sense of impending doom and tragedy and loss, even yeah. the, because the paragraphs come before they die. As you say, right. it's just yeah. Oh, what a good one he was. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, here it barely registered. I could see that. I could see that. What else? First time I thought Jamie had a personality presented in a book other than Scottish, which is a demographic or national identity, not a personality. Really? Yes. And it glimmered very briefly, but I, I, I liked the, uh, the bit about his bluffing strategy. I meant to ask you about that. Um, because I actually asked, are we back to thinking of Jamie as the noble savage? Because we're back to getting, uh, whiskey, which you remember our uh, <laughs> yes. co-panelists had something to say about on that occasion. Yeah, that we're back to hearing Jamie and his dialect, which is just something yeah. Davis does. I kind of do it. I kind of do it. Captain, the, the, the drive, the drive's about to explode. Yep. Yeah, it's just kind of terrible and he's going on about hobgoblins and being afraid of the dark and it's like oh jamie and yet you're right there's there's a bit more personality including a scene that <sighs> davis does a lot to improve this story there's one thing that he does that screws one scene right up it's when the doctor says now there's an element of risk in this if you want to leave you can not you jamie because Jamie starts heading straight for the door, he over-explains it on the page so you lose some of the humor of it. 
But it's really just a funny moment where the doctor is going to ask Jamie to help, but Jamie is like, no, I don't want to be here. Fuck you. I want to live. It's like, hey, thanks. I'll, I will take that offer. Bye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that's a bit of, you know, personality. There's a, there's a scene where Jamie remarks that it's very bright in these passageways where there would be no windows and no visible light sources. And, you know, alpha makes on phosphor, says Hayden casually. Oh, yeah. And he explains, oh, yes. you know, oh, it's a lighting system that... Okay, oh, says Jamie. <laughs> yeah. It's a lighting system that feeds on light. Works by letting cosmic rays bombard a layer of barium. These torches are enough to activate it. Oh, I... That, Jamie <laughs> says, answered casually. Every day since he'd met the doctor, he'd been surrounded with such a forest of things he didn't understand. He found that by keeping his mouth shut and saying, oh, I... That... <laughs> In an off-handed voice, whenever people started mentioning such things, he could fool them into believing he knew what they were talking about. It usually worked. And he does it again, I think, on the next page. But I thought it was maybe the first spark of personality I'd seen, that maybe he's playing up the noble savage, because he really is bewildered much of the time, but he's covering it with bravado, and he knows that people like when he turns up the accent more and sort of does the shtick. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading it more than that's there. That's kind of there. That's kind of well, there. Well, that's well, part of this conceit, right? I mean, in logical terms, any of these people would probably be terrified. They're like, what the hell is oh, going yeah. on? Like, And yet they have to, for the sake of the narrative, kind of just ride along. And, yeah. you know, occasionally have a moment like that. Um, so it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Usually he's more of a jerk. <laughs> yeah, I, I, w- I would tend to agree. I actually kind of do like Jamie in this, but still it's interesting probably because i'm coming at this from somebody who's just really familiar with the televised story but who read this first Mm. and so this is my first encounter with the story ever i didn't even hear the audios before i saw the televised version in the 90s when they recovered it and this is such a good book compared to the televised version because the televised version you watch it and you're like oh this is wow whoa, whoa, whoa. but then you get to the end of it and you're like wait a minute why would they freeze themselves and then and I freeze? expected a big reveal on why did they freeze themselves yes. can't wait to find out and I love, the, I love the doctor's response it's like you don't have to tell us if you don't want to <laughs> And it's got comic moments and it's really enjoyable as a story. But then you think about it and you're like, wait a minute, no. It doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. And this is the story that they decided in the 80s to do a sequel to. (laughs) Oh my god, they decided to go back to Talos. Okay. And tell us about the... Tell us. (laughs) Tell us about the indigenous population who apparently cannot live in high temperatures... Hmm. So they have their own refrigeration systems to keep them alive, and it's like, and what sort of planet, so what sort of fucked up evolution is that? How would you evolve in an environment that would kill you? And it it, it raises more questions than it answers. The cyber controller still alive. So Toberman, nobody is. dies in this story, no. by the way. There, for the number of lines that were like, but nobody noticed the thing in the corner moving two inches towards exactly. them. Like nothing dies. And the ending well, of the televised story is one of those. Yeah. You notice how abrupt this this book ends? Yeah. It's because Davis doesn't want to do the whole thing of at the very end of the story, you see a cybernet just trundling off through the sand, and it's like, or are they? And it's like, oh, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This is the stupid-ass fucking thing. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to last long. 
No. It's not going to last long. The cyber why, why wouldn't it? It's it's almost totally mechanical. Where's it going to get energy from? It's mama. I don't know. <laughs> Probably from the sun. Your mama. <laughs> Your mama. <laughs> like wasn't wasn't the whole thing basically in like like hibernation mode? Yeah. So yeah, I it's agree. Like, it could go into the sunset, but it's not going to last long. Exactly. Like, which is another. See, you've thought more about it than the people who made the damn story did. Speaking of, I was like, <laughs> cyber mats are a really stupid name. Like, what does a mat have to do with a bug? I, like, that I, just makes me think of a laundromat run by robots. Yeah. <laughs> I have a list oh, of... There's a story there idea. Oh. I have a list of oh, wow. ten Static words. electricity, you know, it's a Dalek tie-in. <laughs> oh my god, they're powered by the static electricity <laughs> from everybody's laundry. They keep shrinking your laundry because they turn it on. Oh my god. There are like 10 words that I could just come up off the top of my head that probably would have been better. They could be cyber gnats. They could be cyber bugs, cyber sex, cyber fids, cyber flies, cyber ants, cyber mites, cyber spiders, which I kind of like the ring. Cyber peas. Cyber nids or cyber pods. Did you actually say cyber sex? S-E-C-T-S, like Sa- insects. But no. I was aware of that. that yeah, that would never have flown in the 1960s. Um, but you're right. Well, they it didn't even know what sense. it was yet. I don't either. They didn't know the joy of ASL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anonymous chat rooms. Yes. I know what you mean. I've, I've been a fan of this show since 1979, and I don't know what the fuck that... I mean, I know why macra are called macra. I don't know why cybermats are called cybermats. Why is the planet called Telos? Because I keep expecting it to pay off. It's very <laughs> dusty. Well, but the word means something <laughs> yes, like... it's from Greek philosophy. The, the culmination, the ultimate ending, like a version of this word is like the last thing Jesus said if translated into yes. English, it is finished. And I kept expecting something like this planet will be the ultimate manifestation of their technology yeah. and power and they just kind of it's unplug in the fridge. It's just the, end of, it's the just the end of them. They just thaw. Yeah. Well, yeah... Except it doesn't even do that in Attack of the Cybermen in 1986. It's just stupid-ass story. <laughs> Not this one. I mean, Attack of the Cybermen. I still think it would have been more interesting as in the amusement park. Probably. <laughs> I mean... Since... But I'm partly annoyed yeah. because I think there was a sense of menace in many places getting yeah. to the left yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree. I agree. And you get that. We... Like, why... Would the spacemen put down their tools as soon as somebody enters the orbiter? Are they just gonna go on fucking strike as soon as somebody comes in? There's <laughs> you no can't be here. Work. Yeah, there's no room to work. It's like then that's the other thing. How did how how? I thought somebody... more would come of that because it was such a weird yes, explanation. It is, and there should be more. That they were going to be in on some kind of conspiracy. Well, also, how of all people did Toberman fuck up their ship that bad without anybody noticing? If there's it. no space for anybody to be on there while they're working, it on. sounds like he didn't even fit in the ship to begin with. Because he's so fucking big. Yeah. So it's like, how did he sneak? I, I get the sense of this, like, gigantic figure going, Tee! and on tippy toes. It's like the very first version of um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I don't know if you know this. The readers might not, so I'm just going to bore everybody with it. Um, when Justine Moritz is framed for the murder of uh, Frankenstein's um, younger brother, William, it's explained that the monster snuck up behind her and put the locket that he tore from the boy's neck into her pocket. Oh my, really? Eight foot monster 
sneaks up behind her, goes tee, and sneaks with the into her with pocket. Pink Panther theme playing. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Where it, and people pointed this out to Mary Shelley, and she said, "Oh my goodness, I need to fix this." And when she revised it for the 1832 edition, she gives Justine the line, "Oh, and I might have nodded off for a few moments." And it's like, okay, there. This is the same thing. Toberman sneaks onto the ship, wreaks so much havoc that they cannot take off, and they have to take 72 hours to fix the damn thing. Nobody hears it and nobody notices? Fuck you. They just nodded no. off for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. They're all asleep. Okay. They all got drunk. Tunic ran onto the ship and uh, gave them some of her sleeping oh. serum. And that's the other thing. They're all American. All ex- except for one in the televised version, so maybe they were drinking beer. Maybe. Yeah, I really liked, in towards the end of the book, uh, at some point Hopper comes in, that's like the lead, and surprises them, and they're like, oh, they looked at him as though he had come from another planet, they had forgotten he and the orbiter and the universe existed, and I was like, oh, hey, so would I. Yes. Um, we're sharing experiences here. Yeah. They were so, like, randomly in this story. Oh, even better. Here's the thing. Hopper on the page is so much better than Hopper on screen. Oh, too bad. It, it, no, it really is. Because uh, Davis, I, I think somebody took Jerry Davis aside and said, you know, that story is really fucking racist and sexist. Can you kind of play that down a little bit? Because when Hopper tells Victoria she oh, can't yeah. go down with them, you notice that's the one time she doesn't disagree. She does on screen. She actually says under her breath, Who'd be a woman? Uh, how would you know, honey? No. <laughs> and it's like, holy fucking shit. It is, it's pointed to as one of the most sexist moments in 60s Who. It's not in the book. And then he snaps his fingers and sashays away. Yeah, sashays. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just terrible. What else did we pick apart? What else did we think was particularly good? Did we think of Klieg as... Since he's essentially the bad guy, even though Kaftan is actually the more interesting character. I'm sorry, Tunic is the more interesting character. Or, um, let's see, Mumu is the more interesting Mumu. character. <laughs> She's the more interesting villain, but he's the crazy guy. I thought she was going to be revealed to be manipulating him more, or controlling him more in Master Plan than she was. Yeah. And that would have been interesting. I think she is, actually. I think, um, in fact, it's been played off by later uh, interpretations of the story that they're actually romantically involved and she's using sex as a manipulator and a way to motivate him. And you can kind of see that, but I think it also underplays how strong she is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that from this book. I would have thought she was using, she was just so good at being imperious yeah. and telling people how things were going to be, but... It's easier to see it on screen because Shirley Conklin, Conklin is just a um, striking woman. And she, amazingly, despite being brown face, plays an Arabic woman really well. Well, it came across like even though Klee felt like he was in charge, she really was the one kind of controlling yeah. him and, and calling the shots. He and, resented it, too. Yeah. yeah. In fact, there's an interesting little revision that Davis makes to her lines. A couple of them, in fact. Um, first off, when Cleek says, and whose money is paying for this expedition? And Kaftan says very quietly, mine. Mm, yeah. And the only person that notices it is the doctor. Yeah. Yes. On screen, she kind of shouts it. 
off off camera and it's like okay that kind of ruins it it's much better here but then when she says something about everything everything gives itself up to logic which is our primary premise doctor and he says oh really who's we that's not on the screen either but yeah it kind of makes you feel that Kaftan's really the puppet master here and Klieg is just Klieg knows math yeah, and yeah. has some like weird, deranged, you know, love of power. Him and his oh, brotherhood yes. of logicians, which really made me laugh. Yes. And we never hear from them ever again. No, nope. The, the never brotherhood. Again. The brotherhood. He's like this proto, like neckbeard fedora, like guy. Um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Lady. Lady, yeah. yeah. Um, we're from the. I feel like the brotherhood of of oh, whatever is what they would list on their resume, is. along with Mensa and stuff like that. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. Well, especially since he, you're right. He's absolutely delusional, which leads to that brilliant moment where the doctor makes him think that he's on his side, and he says, "Well, now I know you're mad. I just needed to make sure." Yeah, <laughs> which is lovely. And if the Cyberman is aroused, we'll be ready for him. Oh, oh honey, will we ever be? And Arms raised. I, yes, and I have in chapter 11, I must come inside. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what it, Oh, I, I thought that was actually in the book. No. I was like, what? Oh, no, 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 no. No, the cyber controller says I must come inside. And it's like, oh, I don't remember that from the... Uh, <laughs> By the way, first canonical reference to the Doctor's Age. Not the first reference we've gotten in the books. John Peel continues i love you to death john but i think you're wrong in this that the doctor is 750 years old in his books and you remember when we did reign of terror we referred to the doctor being like yeah 400 or younger and that works for this because he's 450 here yeah and he says that on screen so we have that so that's good i wish i had taken a note of where it was but um in the past, we had we had kind of discussed that the Cybermen were, or their treatment, whatever, was homophobic. Yes, Or yes. seen as, like, a, they were... A statement on, homo- on, on homosexuality. Um, don't remember where it was in here, but I was reading it, and I started reading it that way. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And like I said, I don't have it notated. <laughs> but there was something somewhere in here that made me go, aha, this is... We're going to recruit you. You will be the first, and you will be the second. And you will be the one who guides our uh, invasion army on Earth, or something like that. Maybe that's it. Maybe. But yeah, here you get that whole cyber conversion horror a little bit more, and we haven't had that since Tenth Planet, actually. Um, I think Cybermen? They didn't talk about it much. They just said, oh, we need the moon. Why do you need the moon? Weather control... Weather control things up there. We're going to take over the Earth. Why? Revenge. I thought you didn't have emotions. We don't. Then why do you want revenge? Fuck you. (laughs) That's sort of why. Whereas here, as stupid as the plan is, it at least makes some sense with what we find out about the Cybermen later. It's just, what was their end game? What were they going to do? Yeah, it's... They are a strangely threatening yet non-active foe. Like, they have guns. People got shot. There was smoke coming out of people's clothing. Uh, yeah. They knock people around. Like, yeah, they, they... It's not like when we read um, the last book where there was, like, the weird 
it's but like scorpion bugs or something. The crabs, yeah, the crabs, the macra. The macra. It's not like that where yeah. we're like literally these things do nothing. There's nothing to fear from them. They <laughs> yes. hide under a rock. They're just gonna pray. pinch you. A little yeah, bit. they just give you a little. Pinch, poke you. They just yeah. They just claw you. Um, the, these actually, I'm like, okay, these, these are scary. They can be scary, but they were surprisingly like they didn't exercise that very much that we no. could see. And I have to say, I think the new series and the comics make much better use of the Cybermen than the uh, television series ever did. I'm thinking particularly about an Eighth Doctor uh, comic story, which is really still my favorite Cybermen story, in which Cybermen from the future come and overload the uh, emotion centers of humans and say, see how bad that feels? Doesn't it feel horrible to be crying and terrified all the time? Come to us. Mm. We will we'll take all of that away. Again. Yeah, and mm. it works. They almost convert the entirety of the human race that way. And it's like, I wish the show would do something like that. In fact, um, one episode, when they reintroduced them in the new show, it was supposed to be like the body shop. They were supposed to be taking cybernetic implements as um, uh, like a new iPhone. You know how people oh, stand in line for a new and, iPhone? Yeah. Upgrades. That's why they refer to them as upgrades <laughs> in the I new see. series. I see. And it was supposed to be like that. It was supposed to be, oh, you want better eyes? Come in for an upgrade. If you want a better arm, come in for an upgrade. Until people had upgraded themselves to the point of non-humanity. And that is brilliant. Here you get some of the survival, but you don't get a sense of why they're trying to survive if they're just going to sit in their frigid air the entire time. She's right. in, in like a honeycomb, too. A honeycomb. I was like, so we have a sarcophagus over here, but yes. then there's like the bee imagery over here. It's a brilliant set design. As a matter of fact, what you oh. should do is you should Google an image search for Tomb of the Cybermen because the set is beautiful. That could have been an interesting point, like an interesting plot point, though. Why do they have any ambitions if they're free of the lower emotions or the higher emotions? Why do they want to do anything? Yeah. Why do they want to conquer? And it's not really explored. Some of the later stories make that a bit clearer. That because they cannot reproduce by any natural means, when any of them dies, they have to have raw material from somewhere, and they need humanoids to do it. But why do they desire to continue with this? That is a very good question. I just found the image. Why do they have, in the words of Izzy Pop, a lust for life? Oh. And that's what the Cybermen look like in the story, by the way. <laughs> I'm looking at these pictures on, on uh, Tony's phone here. They look very illumini kind of suits that these yeah. dudes are wearing. I kind of uh, like that design. Oh, I like this last one where it's like obviously smoking on the set. That's <laughs> yes. awesome. that, but it's that that's, one. Yeah, that's how I envision the Cybermen. Yeah, it's exactly. This guy smoking. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, they're, they're... Do you want a light? Oh, okay. <laughs> their like original for, uh, design is, I feel like it's creepy. Yeah. It's supposed to look more like a fabric. And that, instead of looking like a solid robotic face, it's, it looks more like, not skin, but it's more of fabric. It's yeah. identical fabric covering what's left of the human flesh. So, And that's why in the new series, they actually work. Because it's like, holy shit, that looks terrifying. Mm. You can believe that that used to be a human being. These, yeah, they get mistaken for robots all the time, just like the Daleks. Oh, by the way, anybody notice... It's been a long time since he's been called Doctor Who. Oh, yes. I yes, I highlighted both of those. And not just Doctor Who, but DR Who. 
DR Who. I hate it when it's called DR Who. It's like, Jesus God. ND or DO? What? ND or DO. I think he's JD, to be honest. That would make sense. And Victoria has a space time watch, which I just adore. They all have space time watches. It's like, aww. And of course, they're made by Timex. That's who used to make the uh, watches. And the Cybermen, for some reason, believe it's the Doctor who destroyed Mondas, but he did literally nothing in that story except sleep for half of it. Seriously, it's still his fault. It's still his fault. The idea that the Doctor is constantly constantly getting blame and credit for things he didn't do at all and just kind of bumbled into doing it. He's seen as sort of, uh, you know, master of all that he surveys and always has a plan. And he's just kind of, you know, floating along, head on a cloud, and whatever happens, happens. And he's credited as the mastermind of it all. And yet, here, well, here he is kind of the mastermind. He's like Shiva, the destroyer of worlds, because he's you know, kills everybody. By the way, Victoria is badass because she can shoot a Cyberman from, uh, Cybermat from five paces and kill it. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just really wish, I really did wish that she continued to be this way, but... I thought it was a nice touch that the, the, the easy lady <laughs> would have been, uh, when she was trying on the costumes earlier to find the, uh, Short skirts, uh, inappropriately sexy, but I thought it was kind of amusing. She found them inappropriately childlike. <laughs> yes. Thought she was dressed as a little girl. You expected the easy joke to be, "Oh, I look like a streetwalker," but no, it's a kid. <laughs> not for the Victorians. It's, it's, it's slightly creative. Yeah, that she's Alice in Wonderland, and they actually make that pay off later yes. on too, which is really nice. Any last comments that we can think of? Um. You know, per usual, I I went through and noted the places that I thought were a little bit awkward. Uh, And there wasn't that much in this story, which was great. Uh, We'll get to this later, but this is probably one of the better ones that I think I read. Really? Oh, yeah. I I think so. I wasn't mad at it um, (laughs) as as much, but... Did there, not step on the hymen this time. There, no. Or whatever the... Or the uterus. The The uterus, yes. It didn't stomp the uterus. There... Just, just because it's funny to point these things out, and I, I really don't think that it's a person necessarily being a poor writer, but a person being more of a script writer, yeah. and then having to write prose narrative, it's a different challenge. That's exactly what it um, is. There, this was in oh, what chapter? Were we? Chap- chapter seven at some point, and Tunic, uh, it says she, they, they come in carrying a dead body, Hayden, and then. It says, the Captain, seeing the body, stepped down from the console and looked concerned. But it, it's the way that it's the and in there, it's not that looking concerned she stepped down. It was like, first action is step down, second, look concerned. Like, it was like this action that she does. That Given the kind of character it. she is, you could almost see her putting on just a face of concern. It's, it is true. Um, but then, then I would expect him to say something like, oh, and, and feigned concern or, or tried to look concerned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really, like, hilariously weird is... Where, where is it? Yeah. So, like, Hopper comes in. He wants to go away. And this is part of a, a larger thing. That's why I noticed this. That it seems like there's these tropes that people say all the time on TV. Things like when the uh, upset mom is in the station on... Uh, what is that show? 
Law yeah. <laughs> yeah, Law and Order, thank you. Um, the upset mom is on Law and Order and a kid has been kidnapped. She always says something like, I just want to do what's best for my son. You know, something like that. Yeah. Or then some person comes. Yeah. There's there's like tropes that people say all the time. Uh, and I was very accustomed, you know, Captain Hopter coming in and saying, oh, I just aim to get off this damn place, you know, with, with my whatever my still intact, still right? But fine. instead, my skin is still tight-fitting all over. I'm like... Yes. What? Like, you, what? Like, what are you expecting to have happen to your skin? It's I meant to be an Americanism. Like, do the Cybermen take off people's skins? Is this a Buffalo Bill situation? Well, not well, not that do, I can but... tell. I, I just, <laughs> he doesn't came, know that. It came out of nowhere, and I was like, "Ew! Like, what? Yeah. Like, <laughs> d- like I, I expect to leave here with my like my, my face still on, like with my I don't know what you would say. I wrote a few. I know I wrote a few with my nostrils and my nose, like with my armpits with my <laughs> plucky captain's introductions like i just yeah. it, that struck me as really strange uh, and and creepy i was like ew like my pubic hair still attached uh, yeah that was really strange oh and you know there's a couple other things like some victoria she whispers but it's all caps saying jamie i'm like how do you all all caps yes. like whisper with jamie or she screamed, comma, piercingly. Yeah, I don't know how you scream not piercingly. Like, ah. Uh. <laughs> yes, especially since we're talking about Victoria. Her screams are always piercing. Yeah, you always. know. She screams through a pillow. It's not yes. as piercing. A few, a few things like that. Um, but in general, it wasn't. Oh, <laughs> and in the end, when they're like blocking the door, and the doctor's like, wait, we can't touch us. It's electric. There's some timber. Let's use yes! that. I'm like, where the fuck did the timber come yeah, from? What, what is. You. I don't know where that I came from. I still don't know. Uh, but that's, no, that's a common symptom of these books is that the blocking is very. Um, you, you don't know where you are a lot of the time or what's happening. When Victoria whipped out that handbag, it was like, oh, she just happened to always have this. I'm like, did she? I didn't know until this moment right. that that was the case. <laughs> I've she, never heard of the handbag. Yeah, lugs a large Mary Poppin esque, you know, type handbag. I've never seen the handbag. Um, part of her character that she uses it to she, ground herself. Yeah. Heard of it Which yeah. is fine, though. I mean, withdraws I mean, this is her first story mats. away yeah. from home. Yeah. But um, I wanted to, to come back that if we talk about our, our favorite scenes from this, it's yeah, yeah. absolutely got to be that just cherishable little scene, invented that word, um, where she and the doctor are having this talk. Are you happy with us, Victoria? Yes, I am. At least I would be if my father were here. Yes, I know, I know. I wonder what he would have thought if he could see me now. You miss him very much, don't you? It's only when I close my eyes, I can still see him standing there before those horrible Dalek creatures came to the house. He was a very kind man. I shall never forget him. Never. No, of course you won't. But, you know, the memory of him won't always be a sad one. I think it will. You can't understand being so ancient. Eh? I mean old. Oh. You probably can't remember your family. Oh, yes, I can when I want to. And that's the point, really. I have to really want to, to bring them back in front of my eyes. The rest of the time, they they sleep in my mind, and I forget. And so will you. Oh, yes, you will. You'll find there's so much else to think about, to remember. Our lives are different to anybody else's. That's the exciting thing. Nobody in the universe can do what we're doing. Uh, I 
I said, wow, um, maybe the best writing of any of the books I've read. Actually emotionally affecting. And the first time that I've seen that the doctor asks a companion if they're happy, like with yeah. them. Um, and it's a reflection on, on death, on memory, on age and the fun of what they're doing from the doctor like mm -hmm. and i actually was emotionally affected by it not no just by you know the sadness of the death of the father um but by just this small moment of caring by that doctor mm -hmm. it were so often i'm like this doctor doesn't give a shit about these people like he sucks <laughs> and then i'm like oh like this is really lovely and also me being like okay, this writing is great. Why couldn't this have been through the entire book? Like, why couldn't more of the characters, or, or could we see this more often? You've read The Highlanders, you know. It's Jerry Davis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is his high point. It, it is. Um, it really I was is. really quite impressed, actually. Yeah. In fact, I don't think we're going to get another Jerry Davis book. No. This may be it. Which is weird, because it's not the earliest Cybermen is the earliest. This is actually the second one. He dies in 91. Dies <laughs> I always look them up. Yeah, but we're not going to get another book by him. And that's both sad, but also kind of um, a good thing. Because we don't have to talk about things like the Celestial Toymaker anymore. and uh, try to Him calling the Doctor Doctor Who yes. in every book. I still think that was an editorial directive. Yeah. Though it's late enough that we don't have illustrations, which is a shame. The next book's going to have illustrations. <laughs> we get pictures oh, of because like early. So we get pictures. It's just like Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, <laughs> and just about as well drawn too. Um, anything else? I um, I just yes. had highlighted. There's a scene where Jamie tries to offer the Doctor one of the cyber guns, and the Doctor says, "Never use the things." Yep. I just liked that that was added is, in there. Yeah, which is. Given more emphasis on the page than it is on screen, which it should be. Yeah, I didn't know if that was something that maybe... Because we've had instances where the writers add things in yeah. that have been made uh, canon kind of later. I didn't know if early this early in The Doctor, if he was kind of, I, you know, I don't use guns. No, no this is so that probably was the first time he ever says so. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I think this may be the first time that The Doctor ever says I never carry guns. Yeah, because I know from the new series that that is... A, Thing. Yeah, it's a big thing. Like, it's like not Batman using, not killing yeah. people. Right. <laughs> yeah. <It's kind laughs> Batman not killing people. Yeah, in except batterings, you know, yeah. <laughs> must do some damage. Well, at the rate of death in this book, he doesn't need to. I mean, everyone just kills themselves or each other. <laughs> That's true. They were asking yeah, for true. it, and it's all there. <laughs> of course. You know, they should do that. They would have happened eventually. They should no better than to come to a planet called Talos, which means ultimate culmination. That would have been the last Doctor Who doesn't care. This one doesn't seem to notice. There is something of that. There is that. There's just the so many control. controls. He's got to figure out the controls. <laughs> yeah, and well, hopefully he'll do that. We plan paid plenty to build this set, and we are going to use the controls. Mm -hmm. Those Christmas lights were not easy to borrow from my wife. We're going to <laughs> we're going to use this set. Oh wow! You have to say. That drug of caftans that puts Victoria to sleep is both fast-acting and fast-dissipating. I, I kind of would like to try some. Like, I, would too. <laughs> I would love to have, like, a 20-minute so Yes, yes. But then you wake up... Tunic's tonic. There's money to be made on that idea. Oh, I'm sure it's part of that Arabic mystery. Woo! Yeah. Oh, Lord God.
that line about the metal breakdown even better on screen. I really liked that. I was yes. like, no, but because yes. Jamie responds to it by going, ooh. And <laughs> Troughton says, oh, I'm sorry, Fraser, Jamie. He actually almost calls him by the actor's name oh, on screen. Oh, interesting. It's hilarious. Metal yeah, breakdown. Metal like breakdown. That Viner is suspicious because the supposed doctor, quote, never tries to record or examine but he does not behave like any kind of researcher or doctor or archaeologist he's encountered before. He just kind of charges around and does things without writing anything or photographing it or cataloging and it. And that is way. true. And Naturally. later one of the researchers talks about, you know, we don't touch things until we've recorded how and where we found them. So that's fine, right? Yes, yes, and then specifically <laughs> emphasizing the doctor does not do that. Does the doctor just remember? Ah, if he notices. Well, of course he notices, because he notices things that they don't. He noticed the two side doors. He knew about, you know. There's the idea that he can always come back if he needs to. That might be it. That might be it. Well, he's going to come back to Talos in 1986, and <laughs> God, I'm so glad that book is like three or four years down the line for us. She's time. Terrible. So are we ready for Goodreads? I think so. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're interested in this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline that we will post so that we have a chance to see it before we discuss the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 374 which is a couple of tenths of a point lower than Evil of the Daleks. And here are some sample comments and reviews. Tom Hodden, hey Tom, added the very first comments to our Goodreads group. Thank you, Tom. He writes, first of all, am I the only one who thinks the Hammer Horror and Howard Carter influences are even closer to the surface in book form with a thinner layer of sci-fi trappings over them in print? We didn't even talk about that. And, yeah, he's absolutely right. This is basically a Hammer Horror film from the 60s. Yes. Sure, some of the racial stereotypes for Kaftan and Toberman are handled a little more delicately in print, painted with less broad strokes, etc. But the cult-like nature of Klieg and the logicians feels even more like they should be wearing robes and chanting, Im hope tip! <laughs> Good yes. reference. I like the additional scene entering the tomb with the evolution of the Cybermen on display, and frankly, I would have liked a bit more of this. That's right, because that's not in the televised version. In the tomb itself, with more time given to the archaeologists piecing together a history of Cybermen and the nature of their collective mind. Other than that, it's a great adaptation of a great story that lets Victoria be inquisitive and a scientist's daughter, Jamie being smart in a more practical and hands-on kind of way, and the Doctor to be more gallant, needing to stop the Cybermen, and arrogant, refusing to leave or to let innocent people take safe refuge in his TARDIS, which I kept expecting to be expanded into, I suspect we have a traitor in our midst, or I have a reason not to trust these people with knowledge of the TARDIS that never came. Uh, he gave this book four out of five stars. Mel also gives it four stars saying, I think this is much better than the average Target novelization. Yeah. The <laughs> author really tried to get into people's heads more. He also tried really hard to question some of the sexism of the original, which he himself wrote, which is ironic. Mm -hmm. 
It was lovely to see Victoria as the 19th century girl question the attitudes towards women of these men from the future. The scene between her and the doctor when they talked about death and family was also much more touching. Leo H. gives it only two stars, saying, Another Derry Davis book, another lukewarm review. Not entirely sure why I keep reading these, they're never great. The dialogue here was better than in the Highlanders, but it's still a bit of a racist mess without the massive redeeming feature of Patrick Troughton's fantastic performance in the TV episodes. I've noticed that normally reading a Jerry Davis book is what puts me off reading any more Doctor Who books for a while, so I'm doing my best to break the cycle by reading a really good one next. Take that, Davis! I mean, wow. I mean you sure really... showed that deceased person. He's not, <laughs> yes, exactly. He's not going to get Jerry out of the grave anytime soon. Doing nothing in his grave. Uh, <laughs> Has this person read some of the other books? I mean... I guess he has. He talked about Highlanders, and he's right. The dialogue in the Highlanders is awful. But even the Highlanders wasn't the worst of things we've read. No, that's true. And Space Museum? I mean... That's true. There's... Celestial Toymaker, which James didn't write, and his name is Real duds. That is true. So I'm going to ask your opinions. Uh, Jenny, how many stars would you give this out of five? I'm trying to, I should actually track this and, and think back to that... Oh, honey, I've been thinking that from day one. Um, for myself, I should say. I know. I should, should start <laughs> tracking them down. I don't know. I I think that I generally just have, have such low expectations for these books <laughs> that yeah. the the yeah. the whole little <laughs> conversation between Victoria and the doctor was so shockingly welcome. It was like yeah. literally a breath of oxygen when I felt like I was going to drown in bad prose um, throughout like all of these these readings yeah. that it really made me see the book in a better light. And I think the there's actually stuff happens in this book and yeah, it's not always clear and yeah, it's not always hitting home. It's still something that I largely could like skim and still understand what was going on. But there was an attempt at a lot of good action, some funny moments and I think a distinct less lesser of sexist language and yeah there there was some stuff going on with some orientalism and essentializing of the the um turkish and characters but it could have been a lot worse apparently it was so i don't know i maybe like a 3.5 i would go okay. yeah all right dalton i'm sitting about the same place like 3.5 not the worst not the best but like i, I enjoyed it um I don't know, like, there wasn't a whole lot that I hated about this one, but it still just felt kind of just, like, <laughs> kind of just middle of the road. Better than yeah. middle of the road, but yeah. still just, I don't know. It's like when you masturbate and you're like, yeah, okay, that was an orgasm. Just to like, do it. Like, yeah. that was fine. Um. And earlier today, <laughs> earlier today I was saying to my roommate Danny, you know, the worst thing we could ever do on this podcast is discuss orgasms and... Now we've done it. Ta-da! Thank you. Was I not supposed to have yeah. done that? No, it's fine. Um, it's just that's the one thing we haven't really far, talked far about. Far no, because, <laughs> because even the last book, I felt like there was a lot more suspense. There was yes. a lot more build-up. There was a lot more at stake. Yes, and the explosion when it came was really wow. quite satisfying. You know. Um, but but <laughs> even... Oh, jeez. <laughs> even the way that it played out. Like, I kept wanting... You know, this is the tomb of the Cybermen. This is where they have chosen to hibernate until they can come back to take over. What the... What? This this is it? Yeah. So yeah. it, like, ultimately yeah. feels kind of like a letdown in a way after the 
Yeah. Yeah, it almost seems like you're responding to the title the same way fans always did. Right. And the way they referred to this, it's like, that sounds iconic. This seems like the ultimate Cyberman yeah. story. And sadly, it is. Kind of. <laughs> and then, yeah, and I think I think that's the thing is the expectation it, it kind of kills what's actually there. Yeah. What's there isn't bad. It's not horrible. It's actually pretty good. Yeah, for for what it is. True. It's I don't know. It's so three point five. Yeah, there's I, there was a hype that did, it didn't build up. You know, it didn't. And I apologize well. for that because I think I hyped it to Dalton at one point. No, it's, but uh, it's okay. Awesome. <laughs> I think what you're describing is sort of the the enduring curse of serialized storytelling and this originally yeah. being scripted as a serial story is that you know, he's built up a, a very uh, threatening villain who is hard to defeat or yes. very clever and has laid all these traps you are effectively scared curious how are the heroes going to win and then the climax is it's completion but it's not very satisfying as Jenny was saying uh, but I did enjoy the journey along the way. So <laughs> I thought all. that this was... I thought this one had some lovely little vignettes. I, yeah. for some reason, really enjoyed Jamie's sort of acid trip of hypnosis and his description of between circles is, and colors. Yeah. That it's actually challenging it's to describe. It's much easier yeah. to, to animate than than to describe in prose. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned because this is the first... A bit of personality that I had seen from Jamie. I'm afraid it would be the last one. What we've seen with previous companions is that once they start start to give them some sparks of personality, that mm-hmm. wasn't the beginning. That was it. That was the entire thing. It I'm was concerned. the candle flickering before. Yeah. Yes. Before that, dying yes. out. <laughs> and that, that I'm afraid concerned they'll do the same thing with Victoria. Oh, she has some interesting things going on. So but that will be it. So I say two overall, but once again, my two is is as positive. Yeah, so you're, you're more of a classic series, too, than a next-gen, too. <laughs> Remember the warp speeds they kind of... Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I don't have a good sense yet of Jenny's scale, either, um, in terms of hardship. I give it a two, but I don't mean that as a, as a negative at all. I, I enjoyed much of this along the way, and thought it was a fun ride. Okay. And, and um, I also said I appreciate that Davis seems to learn between when he scripts or episodes and when he novelizes them. He does seem to develop and watch should be color racist, like the original thing that I brought. Well, that the adaptations are imperfect. We saw this in the Imperial Tormaker, Tormaker, where it went from this, you know, horrific yellow peril um, oh, no. uh, actor in yellow face in the original episode yeah. to in the novelization a person, a villain who is doing yellow face, True. and that's part of his conceit. Mm-hmm. And then here, the sort of the, the more modern sense of self that Victoria has, he, is, he he's learning and developing as he goes. He's not just regurgitating things that, we, that he wrote in years earlier. That we can't really give Davis too much credit for the ancestral uh, toy maker because we still think his girlfriend may have written that. Remember, one. I'm really? the only yeah. one who kind of liked celestial toy maker. I know you did. I know you did. Um, Allison Bingman was dating him at the time, or at least was one of his students in Los Angeles. It's one of the only Doctor Who um, Target books that was written or co-written by an American. And there's every bit of evidence to suggest that she wrote the whole thing. Interesting. Because it was his last book. Not long before he died. And even the editor, whom I've interviewed, has said, yeah, I think she did it. She's oh, wow. not suspected yeah. of doing it, is she? Doing the men. 
No, 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 no. She's gone to, on to be a well-known, te- well, not well-known, but she's a television producer now. So apparently she's writing better stories than that one. Speaking of better stories, this... Don't look the toy maker personally. Yeah. For me, I, I'm torn because, for one thing, I not only listened to the audiobook of this, but also reread it. So I've been over it twice. This is probably the one Doctor Who book that I have reread multiple times because it was one of the earliest I've ever got, and therefore, you know, it has that hype in my head. And I learned words like Dirk from it. Oh my, yes. The first Dirk was kind of amazing. Yes. First quote. Jamie's wicked looking Dirk. It's like, what? May I interject? Yes, by all means. Jamie hitched up his kilt slightly and checked that the sharp Dirk was in position his long checkered sock. And yes. I did have to Google this word. Yes, because otherwise you're like, you're joining with Hayden and saying, yes, and the Hayden's looking at it and saying, what the hell is that? What is that? Do you have to keep it down in your sock? How are you like, showing? haven't you ever seen a dirt before? Yes. I'm like, Ooh. How are you hiding that when you're wearing a kilt? You're about to. Very carefully, man. Anyway, we've gone off topic. Um, to me... <laughs> This is a classic, despite the fact that the story itself does not lend itself to fridge logic at all. That it is, if you've ever looked at tvtropes.org, they talk about fridge logic, and it's the sort of thing that when you're going to the fridge, either at the commercial break or after the show is over, and you're opening the fridge and you're looking for something to eat, and you think, hey, (laughs) wait a minute. That shouldn't have worked. And what the fuck? And why that? And where did those timbers come from? I don't think you find Sue Dignity in the fridge. Like, no, 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 not this time. Thank God. No, besides, it wasn't Sue Dignity, was it? It was, um, it was, I thought it was, uh, Tim Drake's mother. No, 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 it was Kyle Rayner's mother. Uh, comic book references, sorry. Anyway, um,. I'm just going to tell you what I think about it. 4.5 out of 5. This one I like. And despite the many flaws that it has, including that cover, I I do love this one. I will go out on a limb and say, yeah, Jerry Davis was probably a big old homophobe. He, at times, couldn't write himself out of a wet paper bag, like Highlander. And uh, forget being kind to the Scots. But this one's really lovely. So, yeah, 4.5 out of 5. All right. Thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we look at the Abominable Snowmen. Ooh. Wait, literally? That's what it's called? Literally, it's, it's better than you'd think. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces, like a crazy person. You can also visit our nearly substine pristatic, yeah, <laughs> our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r. It might as well be. Uh, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dw target bc also feel free to watch out the videos of our first 12 episodes give us a thumbs up or comment on youtube youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos follow us on twitter we're at dw target bc subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice except for podbean because unless you give us money we can't afford podbean ah so if you'd like to support us come we to patreon like anyway. yeah exactly we broke up with them well, they broke up with us, actually. If all else fails you, email us at dwtarget at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
nobody in the universe can do what we're doing. 